Welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and each week on this podcast, I talk to some of the most fascinating people on the planet in all areas of life, from mindset to fitness to spirituality, and of course, business. Look, I believe you deserve success in all the areas of your life, not only business. But before we get into today's show, you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard experience. This year, we're going to be going to Mykonos and Marrakesh. In these experiences, I have hand-selected a group of high-performing business people who are seeking more balance, connection, and they want to celebrate their wins as a reward for the hard work that they put in. If you want someone to curate once-in-a-lifetime experiences and force you to play more, rush over to workhardplayhardexperience.com. Fill out an application so we can jump on a discovery call to see if this is a good fit for you. And remember, excuses are over. It's time to live. I didn't break any rules because they weren't set yet. So if you can make new rules for the work you've done as well, you're also doing a good job. In order to stay creative and to be creative, you have to ignore a lot of things that you know, but at the same time, you have to sort of know all of it to erase some of it, if that makes sense. You have to know all the rules to break them. And that's difficult at times. The greatest tool a designer can use is restraint. And often designers think that they have something to prove to the world. I want my work to be unnoticed and be so good that you wouldn't even know it was there. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. Today's episode features Joey Reuter. So I'll set it up this way. I went to the Peterson Museum. I had the privilege of being at an event where we were able to have the whole museum to ourselves. And I walked into one room it was a room where like my brain was like exploding because it was a car that was reimagined, a skateboard that was reimagined, a scooter that was reimagined. So everything you think of a car, it was not, but it actually was. And I was fascinated by this room. And then as luck would have it, a buddy of mine, Matt Marrick, reached out to me and he said, hey, I want to introduce you to my friend Joey. So it was just one of these happy coincidences that happened. And I knew I had to have him on the show. And so I'm really excited for you to listen to this episode. And I was fascinated by just walking around his brain and trying to understand how he does what he does. And I'm so excited for you to listen to this episode. So without further ado, please enjoy this interview with Joey Reuter. Joey, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. All right. So we're going to start with describing in your own words what you created now that's on display at the Peterson. And I'm going to tie that back into the 80s. But first, because people have no idea what we're talking about and what you do. So maybe we could just start with your current, I guess it's called an exhibit, 
um, at the Peterson Automobile Museum in LA. Yeah, the exhibit is called Disruptors. And a friend of mine, Ryan Coolhouse, and I, who runs United Nude Shoes, he kind of, we were collaborating on some things. And he's like, you know what we should do is do a show together. We both have a similar vibe. And it came, it came in fruition pretty quick, quickly. Um, those are pieces that I've been building sort of on the side or not part of my business, but it is part of my business. So I create a fake client for myself in my design firm, which I am a self-proclaimed industrial designer slash artist, if I would give myself a title. So I okay. create these clients to say, hey, if you could um, you know, build this new motorcycle, what would it be? Or I, I write a design brief for those. And then in each one of those, I try to like make a point or a nod or a middle finger up to different industries that are wrestling with the same issues where I can sort of sidestep and go around all the issues that they have and just create one thing to serve one purpose to do one thing. Um, Free free expression. Since since this is an audio medium and the bulk of the listeners will be in the gym, you know, driving down the road, listening to this, maybe just give me one or two examples in your own words of what you created that's over at the Peterson so people can kind of get, you know, sort of like make a visual in their head. Yeah, so um, I like to dabble in transportation, so how we get from A to B. And there are seven or eight examples at the Peterson and how we can do that, simply from a skateboard reimagined to a really high-powered, capable, go-anywhere-do-anything vehicle. Um, Each is sort of articulated in form meets fashion meets function. Each one is sort of an iconic piece or visual right away. So they're not like referenced in another car or another setting. You can't say, well, that kind of looks like this or that. They're truly new pieces that um, we were trying to start a new, not necessarily trend, but like create something new that you would think twice or look twice at. Now, do any of these pieces work? In other words, could you drive them down the road? Yeah. Um, Part of my work as an artist, it's like, well, it's kind of fun to see something that's really radical or a rendering or a concept sketch. But when you can actually mash your foot into the throttle of something, it changes the game totally. So yes, each one of these pieces is fully functional. The cars are street legal as well with their own VIN numbers and titles and insurance. So that adds a layer of complexity, but also a layer of intrigue and sets people's imagination so they can actually envision the wonder a little bit more. They can, it, it's not just a piece to look at. It's something that actually is real. So I think that's what flips people out more than anything else because they could actually see themselves getting in it and using it, but then they actually could. So that's, well, that's, that's the whole part. thing. Yeah. That's the whole thing. I looked at it and I was like, okay, this is amazing, but I'm sure it's just like, you know, just looks cool. You know, totally. You can't, you can't drive this thing down the road. That's why I was really fascinated by that. So for people listening, we're going to put up a link in the show notes to all of the uh, all of the pieces, all of the art. So it would really be helpful if you could pull over and click the link and look at these uh, look at these pieces as we go through it. But I want to go back with what I opened with, which is back to fast times and fun times in Grand Haven, Michigan in the <laughs> 80s. So can you take me to take me back to when you were nine years old and 
you decided, I'm going to take apart a lawnmower. And then I'm going to ride this thing to school. I mean, like when you see an object like a lawnmower, what sort of questions do you ask yourself? Like when I see a lawnmower, I see something that cuts grass, right? Right, That's kind of, that's where it stops. You see it and say, oh, that'd make a cool car. I'm going to drive it to school. Like, like walk, walk me through the crazy, the fun, beautiful, crazy of your brain at nine years old. Well, yeah, my dad um, worked about an hour away from the house. So every he came in late most nights. And one night, particularly, we're kind of waiting for him and no big deal. And out of his trunk is sitting this old yellow riding lawnmower, you know, that's kind of a small machine. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. He's like, hey, just do whatever you want with this thing. Like he found it on the side of the road or whatever he did. And I had two other brothers who were also like mechanically inclined. And yeah, we, we changed that little lawnmower into a very fast little go-kart slash vehicle and ripping around that through the neighborhood quite a bit. I decided to tow my friends to school on their skateboards with some ropes one day. And then what the kicker was, I parked in a teacher spot with the mower. <laughs> and they actually, I like the thing, like if they don't make signs for work that you've done, you haven't done a good enough job. So like if I had invented the skateboard and you see a sign like no skateboarding here or no this or that here. So I actually had a sign put up at the school saying teachers, automobile parking only in the, in the lot. Because I'm like, well, I didn't break any rules because they weren't set yet. So if you can make new rules for the work you've done as well, you're also doing a good job. So that, my suspicion, is probably a theme in your life where you're sort of like looking at rules and either challenging them or re- reimagining and reinventing them in your own way and then operating within the confines of the new rules. Is that right? Yeah, totally. And especially in the vehicles in the Peterson, like in Michigan, for instance, to make a car street legal and um, registered, you have to have windshield wipers and a horn and, and a bumper at a certain height. And those requirements are so loose. I mean, I had a squirt bottle in the passenger seat for the wiper fluid spray. And they're like, I, I guess that works. You know, like we can really rethink um, how we do things. And I'm, constantly disappointed in the lack of creativity in the products around me. So that's kind of a driver in my, my own work. All right, hold on. I got to back up to the squirt bottle. So <laughs> this is fascinating to me. So you got, okay. So you got these rules, you're making the car street legal, which means you got to get the VIN number and yeah. you've got to meet certain criteria. One of the criteria is that, you know, you've got to have, you know, you got to have windshield wipers, windshield wipers on it. You have to have a way to clean the windshield. And you have to weigh, you have to have a way to apply fluid to the windshield in order to clean it. And does the way to clean it mean some sort of like, you know, how the water ejects out onto the windshield? Does it have to be like that? Or it just has to be some way that it can be cleaned? Just some way it has to be cleaned. Um, and then, yeah, there's just, there's a lot of little nuances for that. Okay. And there's a, there's a third option most of the time, you know. Okay, this is interesting. This is really interesting. So there's and actually a third, fourth and fifth and sixth option, you know, if you're really kind of diving into it. So most people go A, B and you go, yeah, they could be C, D, E, and F. Yeah, I like to say it's A and B and C, you know, like it's not one or the other. It's actually both of those. And then you're surprised with that. Oh, 
Okay. So when you created these cars, not only do you have to create the the form, the function, redesign it the way you want, but to make it street legal, you have to operate within the confines of that. Like, like walk me through the process. If I like, I'm thinking right now, if somebody said to me, okay, go make a car. First of all, I have no fucking idea how to do it, but let's say that I did. Okay. If I did make the car, where do you even go to find out what the rules are for making a car? Like, do you just look it up online? Do you like, how do you? Well, Michigan's an interesting state for automobiles. You know, we seemingly have created them and manufacture lots of them. So we are a pretty lawless state comparatively to other states. So this would be more difficult in, in like California, for instance. Yeah, there's just a checklist of like, I think it's like 18 different things and they're fairly simple. They don't meet like the standards that an automobile company would be. So it's an assembled title. Okay. And then you get a patent on it. Uh, I do not have patents on these types of vehicles. But in your other work, which we'll get into, you do. Yeah, there's quite. I've got quite a few patents under my name, but they are mostly for the companies I work with. And um, uh, okay. I don't hold a lot of value in, in that kind of stuff. Because why? It's just, it's kind of legal speak. Uh, it depends on what the patent's for, but a design patent is fairly loose and it's easily changed and easily gotten around. But a mechanical patent is a different story and I don't have too many of those. It's a little, it's a little tighter, a little more rigid. Yeah, yeah. You know, I had once heard, and you can tell me if you've heard this and if you have, if you think it's correct, and and maybe this would be an interesting conversation, but I had once heard that the reason a rocket ship is the design, you know, sort of, we'll call it tubular, is because they had to put it on a railroad, which was designed with the tracks in the way that it was, that it was designed. Have you, did, you ever, did you ever hear that story? Um, not that one particularly, but lots of them like that. Like the width of two horses side by side is basically the standard of everything today, you know, walking side by side or two oxen. That's, but that's amazing, right? Like we don't realize you're literally looking at everything and saying, no, I think we could do it differently, but I don't know how you get past that piece in your brain that sees it. Like when I think of a car, you know, I think of a car, right? It's got four wheels, got the act like, but you challenge that. Does that come naturally to you? Or do you have to, do you ask yourself different questions or have you trained yourself this way? Or did somebody teach it to you? Or like, where does that come from? Yeah, it's definitely a training. I don't know if anybody like told me how to think this way, but in order to stay creative and to be creative, you have to ignore a lot of things that you know. But at the same time, you have to sort of know all of it to erase some of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. You have to know all the rules to break them. And that's difficult at times. So I think my best analogy, if there is one, is kind of an equalizer meant like a for a stereo. And if you we're probably similar ages, but you used to turn the bass all the way up and throw everything else down to the bottom level at zero. <laughs> I so still it sounds, do. I still yeah, do. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I'm 53 years old, so I'm a little probably older than you. But I, re, but I drive down the street still feeling like I'm 16 with yeah, like exactly. you know, the, the thing vibrating. Yeah, go ahead. But you can kind of dial those in. So when I take new projects on, I, I, those, all those 10 or 20 different criteria pieces are the sound levels. I'll just raise one of them up all the way. 
So let's say it's um, like I'd have a motorcycle at the Peterson that's a chrome box. And I put everything on a motorcycle down to zero, like noise, shape, um, sexiness, paint, mechanical variances. And then I just raised one up and it was just rider posture. So that's the only thing I worked on is the posture of a rider on this thing. And then just sort of traced the lines around it and ignored everything else. So what you're left with is something stripped of everything that you're used to seeing. In the, the buggy at the Peterson, I thought about only performance and what does that look like for a car. So ignore the user in it, ignore driving positions, ignore you know comforts, and just think about what the car wanted. And then I sort of go down the list, picking those up all the way, but and then erasing the other ones. So then think about only the person and only um, the shape or something. Oh, so it's not that the car is created. We'll use the example that you just gave of the motorcycle for the the posture of the rider. It's not only the posture full stop. You work on that first and then you incorporate the other dials to raise up or down. Yeah, I think by by separating the criteria or the, the harsh lines you need to cross, then you, you're discovering new things about that. If you holistically think a thing think of something it's just too massive to sort of comprehend it's like holy cow a car where do i even begin like i've got wheels i've got steering wheel i've got seats and windows and it's a little bit daunting so i just elevate each thing to the max and then it's not hopefully at the end of the day not one of those things it's sort of all of them elevated to the max so it's user experience is heightened 100 percent, and then the car is 100 percent um, the capability is really high. You know, the guy that I was with... I hope that makes Peter, a little bit of sense. No, it makes, <laughs> it's, a, it's a beautiful analogy because what I'm doing is I'm putting myself in two places. One is thinking about how you think about things and how I can apply that in my life in other areas. But I'm also thinking about my first experience in looking at your work. And I was with a buddy of mine and we, I was at an event where the whole we shut down the museum. We had the whole museum to ourselves. And I was walking around and my buddy looks at me and he said, this hurts my head. (laughs) (laughs) My exhibit particularly? Your exhibit particularly. And I said, (laughs) why? He goes, I just don't know what the fuck to think. And I think that there is a, when you have an image that is in your head of what a car looks like, and then you see what you created, your brain has no file drawer to go in to go i recognize what that is yeah and i think that's and i love sort of like bridging the gap between how you're describing in the way you think about it and also in the way that you know somebody experiences it for the for the first time speaking of experiencing it i would suspect that it is never easy or comfortable to unveil your baby in or babies in front of the worlds. What, if any, tools do you use to develop the skill set to have the confidence to, you know, potentially quote unquote fail in front of people or in people's minds? Well, you have to really like yourself and love the work you do. So I don't really mind if somebody hates what I did, but if you do it, right enough or good enough 
they sort of, it's like your friend that was like, his brain was melting or whatever, he was hitting it. Yeah. It's yeah. like, the proportions are actually pretty well done and they're nice looking, but you kind of don't like it, but you sort of have to like it because it, it's sitting right, it's low, it's kind of mean. Or So I like pulling on the people's emotions like that. It's like, wow, that's pretty badass, but like, I would never even think about using that or I don't like that, but I sort of do, you know? Yeah, the, the comments, you know, that I, when I launch something new, I'm not sure how to really take a lot of them, but I, I feel bad for the people that can't look at it a little bit more open. If that, so my, my emotions are like not personally saddened, but I'm saddened for like somebody else, you know? And I don't mind if somebody doesn't like my work. That's, that's totally fine. And I want my work to be very polarizing. So I think the polarization, it makes it fun. It's like, you know, you're poking somebody where, where it kind of hurts and whether they love it or hate it is, is not really my, um, my goal is to make people like my stuff. Just maybe rethink what they've thought about something is my goal. But is that process ever hard for you? And the reason why I'm driving that point home is I think there's a lot of people listening that maybe they want to write a book. Maybe they want to do a podcast. Who knows what they want to do? Something creative. And with the world of the internet now, whenever you go public on something, everybody's got an opinion. How do you insulate yourself because your work is polarizing in how people react to it. I mean, you know, you're not creating a nuclear bomb polarizing, but you're creating yeah. something that makes people feel a certain way and they're going to have an opinion. Does it ever bother you in any way? Or maybe a better question is, do you ever think about creating something so you don't get reactions from people because you, because it's difficult for you? Hmm. You know, I don't, I really enjoy showing my work and I don't, maybe I have a part of my brain that doesn't exist in the, in that sort of department, but I, get, I think I go back to, you just have to love what you're doing. And if you like it and you think it's great, it shouldn't matter what other people think. And that sounds a little hokey, but I'm, I'm, I'm my best um, advocate. You know, I'm in my shop by myself. I'm like, holy cow, this is awesome, Joey. Like, look at this. You know, like I'm literally saying that kind of stuff to myself. And my wife, you know, teases me and like, I can do no wrong is kind of what I think in my head, but I do often fail, but it, it doesn't put me back. It kind of makes me work harder. When I have had criticism and it's meaningful, that, that hurts the most. Like, oh, I did actually mess that up a little bit. Or if it's a technical thing that I overlooked or didn't do something quite right, that that stuff really bothers me when I get called out. And that's that's happened, but... I love that. That is exactly what I wanted you to say. I wanted people to see, to listen to, it doesn't fucking matter. Do what you love and whether yeah. they like it or not, it just doesn't fucking matter. That's what I wanted to get out of you. And I love the fact that you operate from, uh, from that uh, place. Now, <clears throat> you spent a bit of time, uh, I think if... If I'm right, in the earlier years, uh, designing office furniture, but it, I don't think it turned you on in the way you needed it to. What was it about those kind of projects that left you sort of wanting more? No, I. That's most of my business currently. I would say sixty, seventy percent is office furniture. Still, and yeah, still. What turns me on about that is the complexity and the systemic nature of that kind of product, and it's a user is actually using it physically 
And I really like playing with those emotional sides that design can provoke um, good or bad. So it's like a, as close as I can get to the user without like actually making something like a clothing or something like that. Because somebody sitting in my products all day for a majority of their life, you know, day in and day out, having good days and bad days. And I really feel like through design, you can help that person do better things in the world. So they, so you sounds like a commercial for office furniture. No, 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 it doesn't. It doesn't. It sounds like an artist who really is invested in, you know, what he's creating. And he knows that, knows that somebody's ass is going to be in that chair for a big bulk of their day. And you're trying to make it beautiful um, so that they enjoy not only the functionality of sitting, but the form and sitting in the way that it makes them feel. Because look, you have a beautiful piece of furniture. You feel differently when you sit in it. I mean, it's just, yeah, right. Well, I mean, naturally, we walk into a space and like through a threshold, through a new door, and we feel a certain way given to us by the things in front of us, or the smell, or the lighting. All those control sort of how we are going to perceive the next few moments of our life. And um, if you can, you know, touch those points a little bit differently, um, you can shape maybe a better outcome potentially. Yeah, for sure. So in 2005, you opened your studio. What does your design firm do exactly? You mentioned office furniture. I know you have the pieces at the Peterson, but what, like who comes to you and what are the things that you typically do? Yeah, so I get briefs. Um, So office furniture for sure. They'll say, hey, we're thinking about, you know, the next five to 10 years of you know, furniture and these facilities, what does that look like? And I might craft like a vision for that, or it might even be like a sentence or a notion, or it could be designing a new piece, like a physical object. But I'm really trying to craft a future narrative for how companies want to be perceived or help their end users. And then I take those same type of scenarios into other areas like transportation or um, consumer products. So my firm, I don't do a lot of consumer products, like big plastic parts, I would call those. But if then you are from dental products to high chairs to definitely furniture, boating, I do a lot of boat interiors and um, conceptual boating. I would say 80 to 90% of my work is never seen. So that's the other miss in my design firm. So when I create my pieces for the Peterson, that's like free work to the public from me as my vision of the future, but I because I can't really show what I'm doing for clients. I'm not entirely sure. I follow, I feel like I followed like about eighty percent of that. <laughs> Sorry. So no, no, that's okay. That's okay. I'm I'm like almost there with you. So if somebody comes to you, let's use the example of a high chair. Yep. Are you reimagining the high chair for a company's? future versus creating the high chair that's going to wind up at Toys R Us next week? I do both of those things. So in the high chair example, they are saying, hey, we are, you know, we want to produce this chair in the United States. And, you know, can you help us get there? Here's some visions of what we think. And then I propose what I also think. And then we're working together to create a product. Very typical design. Um, you know, exercise through engineering, prototyping, physical models, testing, uh, definitely a shape up front. 
but I think I bring to a table another slanted view that or a perspective that they may not have seen before. So like, you know, I have a five-year-old child and so I'm just sort of out of the stroller worlds. And, you know, now I've got this awareness of strollers. So, you know, I, I start seeing these strollers walking by and I'm like, whoa, that's cool. Yeah, oh, right, that's right. cool. So I look at like the McLaren, right? That That's the new yeah. one. And I'm like, well, that, like, who the hell came up with that idea? And so, like, this is, I'm, I'm sort of like putting the pieces together. It's a guy like you that looked at the stroller and went, we're going to reimagine this whole son of a bitch. And this is, yeah. what, this is what I think it could look like. Is that right? Yeah, totally. And a lot of it starts with a problem or provocation. Um, sometimes it's, you know, a new company for me that would hire me and say, hey, we're, we're going to launch a new, you know, bottle company. And will you help us, you know, shape that, you know, and, get us to the to manufacturing with that. A lot of my business too is me and my shop sort of creating and thinking on my own based on things I'm seeing and learning um, coming up. And then I'll pitch those products to uh, companies. And I do that a lot with office furniture. You know, I'll create a chair here or a desk or something and then I'll kind of shop it around to see if anyone wants to license it or pick it up. Okay. So you create the you create the chair. And then you go to the company and you say, hey, would you want to license this chair? And then I guess when they, for each piece that they sell, you get a percentage of, is that kind of how it works? Yep. Um, sometimes, some, you know, the, the, um, the conditions are all kind of different, different companies, but yeah, that's kind of a, a nice way to work. You've said that the art of design happens when you change the way things are perceived and you challenge convention, and you create new stories and interactions and the rarity that we want. Can you walk me through how you approach tackling a new project? So I'm in, I'm, I'm standing there with you. You got the new project. It's in front of you. It's just you and a blank slate. Like, what's the first thing that you think about? You know, I start going very basic with what you need to have. Like if it's a chair, for instance, I know it's probably this high. I know it's probably, you know, roughly this wide. It has to sit the floor. It has to support this much weight. And I just sort of craft like, what does this absolutely have to be? Um, and hopefully that like first answer is the right answer eventually. Because anything else would be just like more for more sake. So I'm very deliberate about like stripping away from the beginning and just sort of asking simpler questions about what does this actually have to be? And if you listen to those answers, it's sometimes um, I've had clients do this and the answer is don't do anything <laughs> or don't make a new product, you know, keep what you have or... Um, Give, uh, uh, I don't think uh, I'm uh, answering your question. Un, 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 no, 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 you are. Unpack that a little bit. When you, when somebody says like, don't do anything, is there a specific example that's coming to mind when you think about that? Like, you know, where you were in a situation where somebody came to you and... Oh, yeah. Were, yeah, for sure. They'll say, hey, we need this, you know, new product to fill this need in the market. And, you know, can you help us there? I'm like, oh, yeah, it'd be great. So I, I start thinking about it and where it might fit in, what it might sort of grow into or, and be. And then I'm like, you know what? I actually think that doing more here is going to make you less. It might cannibalize your other products. And I think if you just... It's almost talking myself out of work. Um, but as a minimalist, you know, 
doing nothing is sometimes the best. It's actually more than doing more. You know, it's interesting. I just got back from... Uh, well, that's spending... a tough sales pitch as a designer. So if there's... Yeah. No, I, I get it. I mean, I, I, I get it. What I'm thinking of, I'm trying to draw parallels in my head. I don't have a lot of them, but I'm trying to draw some of them. I just spent four months in Europe and the last two of those months were in Florence, Italy. And, you know, certain... Like, we'll go out to dinner and... I'll have something that's like the best plate of whatever I just had. And I'm like, what is in this thing? Yeah. And the chef will say three ingredients. Yeah. I'm like, what? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and he's like, nope, that's it. You know? And so it sounds like you have recognized not to over schmaltz everything. And sometimes bringing something down to the bare minimum is actually going to make it more appealing. Yeah, I've I've said like the greatest tool a designer can use is restraint. And mm. often designers think that they have something to prove to the world and like I'm going to make the tallest building and the the wildest, you know, whatever and and put a lot of like a arrogant stamp on something and I want my work to be unnoticed and it's it'd be so good that you wouldn't even know it was there. I think that's that's kind of my goal. How does this fall into other areas of your life? For example, I feel like you probably live in Battlestar Galactica. I feel like <laughs> you live in a spaceship. <laughs> Basically. And, and, and like you get out of a pod in the morning and you float up and coffee just comes, you know, spitting out of a wall. Like, is, it's actually is, not far from that. Is, is that how you live? Yeah. You know, it takes a while to, you have to design your life too. You know, like I, I'm a proponent of when you walk into a space, the entry better be epic every time. And you're going to feel a certain way when you walk through that. Um, the bathroom should be really nice. And, you know, that's about it. Everything else sort of goes away. <laughs> and, you know, your your bedroom should be great. We just, we fill ourselves with the worst products in the most of our lives. And I'm just, I'm baffled by that. So my house, I mean, we've dialed it in and it's taken a while, but yeah, it's a glass black box in the woods. You know, my shop is next to my house. Um, there's natural light pouring in everywhere. You wake up to a view of the woods and just, you can see the sky I and mean, it's, it's quite nice. You know, so when you wake up to that, your day is set up differently. Of course it is. And you were super intentional. You know, it's funny. I just, I like, I did not know that you lived like that. I was thinking that you were going to say like, nah, I live in a subdivision. It's a hundred thousand dollar <laughs> no, house. And like, I just, I just have a, like, you know, cause, because there's, there's a little bit of the, you know, the shoemaker goes without shoes in a lot of cases like this, you know? I so know cool. how powerful those deep primal feelings are that we have. And I guess I use myself as an experiment with this stuff, but it's definitely conscious. Well, this goes without saying, but this if it's a stupid question, forgive me, but would you consider yourself very good with your hands like mechanically or are you stronger in your brain as a, you know, a visionary, as a conceptualist, as somebody who can put ideas together or are they or, or both of those equal in strength? For you, yeah, I would say I use like three of those tools all the time. So I'm in the shop mechanically, physically doing things. I think about things 
very deeply in my head as I'm, you know, kind of walking around traveling. And then I have a computer side. So it's like third, third, and third, but they're all, they're probably all 33% out of a hundred, but. Okay. So you're, you're leaning on them sort of equally. Yeah. So I, I know that you somehow lost a 1968 Porsche in a pond. Yeah. What happened there? So when I was 14, I got my first car. It was a 914 Porsche. And then I would buy that and then I would fix it up a little bit and sell it and kind of upgrade the cars throughout my life. And then it was just sort of my fallback. So I paid for my college doing that. I would drive like a really fun car in the spring and then sell it in the fall, pay for school and drive something shitty the rest of the year, Yeah, which is kind of a fun deal. So then when my business was slow, or it's kind of my muse. So I, I restored this 1968 912 Porsche, very sweet little car. And then I got a text on my phone and there's a picture of my car in this pond, you know, like half underwater. And I thought it was a Photoshop job for my wife because she's a graphic designer. And like funny joke, you know, good one. And it was a real deal. So it full Ferris Bueller rolled out of my driveway, flipped over and destroyed the car with a matter of, you know, two or three seconds. I'm sure I wasn't home at the time, but, and then a tow truck guy came and basically gaff hooked it on the hood to just rip it out of the pond. Like it's such a precious object. And then to see it in that like context, like the total opposite of what you would do, like polishing headlight bezels to like gaff hooking the hood, you know, fun stuff. I hadn't owned an American car yet. And then when that finally went in the pond, I was like, you know, I'm done with this for a while. I'm going to do the absolute opposite. And then I searched for a Lincoln Continental, which is the biggest, baddest American car you could find. So, yeah, for sure. Kind of a turning point in my design. You know, I wanted to just rethink and re or new learning on something totally different. How does how does this? We talked about how it you know sort of how it transfers into your home and your physical environment. Does it? Does it go further out in the way you're thinking into like the way you dress, into uh, the way you cook food? You know, is is that as important to you or do you not? Are there certain areas where it's like, you know, I probably should be more conscious of it, but I'm just not. Yeah, I definitely try to eat, you know, a proper diet, so to speak, and, you know, take care of my body. Um, I dress very simply. I just basically wear black every day and it, my daughter like is driven insane by it. But, you know, I'm, it's a practicality for me. I'm dirty in the shop a lot. It's easy for me to just dress. You know, I don't have to think too much about it. Okay. Um, Henry Dreyfus was a designer in the, you know, 50s and he was coined the man in the brown suit because he uh-huh. wore the same thing. And he made all his employees wear the same suit every day too. So they wouldn't waste creativity on picking clothes out. Which I'm not well, that abstract or absurd, but well, I mean, this is a Steve Jobs ism, right? Yeah, right. I mean, really interesting. Okay, <clears throat> so we're going to flip uh, gears a little bit in the time remaining. I want to move into the area of the art of fulfillment. We kind of dug into a little bit of the science behind uh, what you do, you know, the, the the business that you're in. But I want to talk a little bit about fulfillments. If I asked you to point to one or two things that 
you could point to as evidence for your life well lived? What are a few things that come to mind for you? Oh, these are pretty big ones here. In other words, you come to the end of your life and you're like, you know, I know that my life was well lived because of these one or two things. Like just, like I know yeah. that there's going to be Sim- a lot of them. Simply relationships that I have. I pride myself on creating a community around me that not only lifts me up, uh, but also challenges me. And I would be nothing without those relationships I've gained um, over the years. And a lot of my working relationships, but you know, I, I think I, I have some of those deep connections because I've also asked them or been very open with them and asked them to be open with me. So whether it's knowledge or personal things, it's um, deep connection definitely helps. Mm-hmm. Awesome. That's a, that's a great answer. I think a lot of people are going to resonate with that. <clears throat> is well, there it's funny, name? like when I do builds and I go to a, like a metal fab shop that people just break press metal all day, mm-hmm. you know, they just in and out, in and out. Um, and I come in there and say, hey, will you try this? Or, and I'm asking them how to do something. And they're the expert, you know, who am I to walk in there and like tell them how to do something? So I'm full education every time like empowering the people around me. So I, I feel like I'm learning a ton and then they feel like they can finally, you know, let it rip on something they've been wanting to try as well. So a lot yeah. of the credit goes to the, you know, everybody around me for sure. Yeah. The fact that you have self-awareness of that is great because at this, at this stage of your career, you could easily, you know, allow your ego to be super inflated and say, look at me, but you're still willing to be a student. So that's, that's amazing. Is there a new behavior or a belief in the last number of years, or it could be months that has significantly improved the quality of your life? You know, I've, I've sort of stopped having anxiety. This is kind of an odd way to start this, but I wrestled with anxiety for many, many years. Um, And I don't know what the shift was, but it was kind of like, I feel like I'm just going to do what I need to do and it's going to be okay. I had a friend of mine, a photographer, you know, tap me on the shoulder or grab my shoulder and said, Joey, it's fine. Like, what's the worst that can happen? And I'm like, if you actually answer that, you realize like, nobody's going to explode, you know, like it's not going to like, what's the worst that can happen if you launch a new product online or a painting or a story you've written, like somebody's going to not like it and say that you're a terrible writer, you know, like, so I, I figuring out to actually answer those huge questions in front of you. And the answers are very simply like, won't bother you was a big turning point. Yeah, and even if they do, the 24-hour news cycle will be over really fast. Yeah, so, yeah. So I, think I love that. Enabling myself just to like not think too hard about it. It used to really bother me when somebody would ask me how I was doing. Because, oh man, this is going to take a while. Like, you know, it's like, and now I just say, I'm fine. Like, it, they don't really need to know or... No, I love that because I think, I think we all wrestle with that. And so if you unpack it and you look at it and you go, well... It's not going to be as bad as I thought it was going to be. We're we're going to be just fine. What is a goal that you thought, you know, when I achieve this, my life's going to be freaking amazing. And then you got it and you were like, it just didn't really do what I thought it was going to do. Hmm. Every, every goal. (laughs) (laughs) See, I, I know the answer to this already. I know it won't 
fulfill me deeply. So I don't tell myself that on, on many things. I am driven to do lots of things, but I already know deeply that it's not going to affect my existence. That's great. That's yeah. great. You know, when I started my business, it's been 15 years now. I The first year, I'm like, okay, I quit my job at a large company. I kind of walked out the door. I was on the phone with my wife and I'm like, oh man, I have to go to this meeting. This is just it's too much. Like, I just don't know what to do anymore. She, and she says, why don't you just quit and just, just figure it out? I'm like, okay. And then I did. You know, so there's no glamorous story in how I started my business. But the first year I was out, I'm like, you know, I want to show in a museum. I want to have a piece in a museum to show. And then I want to um, launch one new product with a manufacturer within one year. And um, I hit both of those fairly quickly and then realized I should have set bigger, harder goals, you know? <laughs> and then, I don't know, it was just, it, it wasn't enough instantly right away. So. Yeah. I mean, the, the point I'm trying to drive home is that, you know, people who are achievers, even at like your super high level and what you're achieving, you know, there's a young designer somewhere that is listening to this and going like, dude, he's got cars in the best museum in the world for this kind of thing. Like if that were me, I'd be walking around with a (laughs) tattooed on my forehead. You know what I mean? So I just want to put perspective that it's not always the case, you know, when you get it. So, you know, don't be wishing your life away. Yeah, for sure. I feel really privileged to be, you know, especially at the Peterson, you know, I, I didn't know the gravity of that until I was in there seeing the show firsthand of my own show. I feel like I'm like witnessing something from a third party perspective. <laughs> and it's like, holy cow, this is cool. It's like, what? That's actually my stuff all here, you know? Like, well, you're like, you're next to the freaking Batmobile. I know. I mean, yeah. literally, like, literally next to the Terminator's car. Like, every yeah, the Mad night. Max one got me in there. You know. Right. I mean, like, wow. Okay. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? I like definitely to travel. Like, you know, I like lots of things like hobby wise. Yeah. I'd probably go to, see, if I say this, I feel like I'm going to have to do it now. And I don't think I would do it. <laughs> I would probably live for a month, like in a very poor country and see what's going on, like from a design standpoint, like to learn and sort of, I feel like a lot of cultural fashion and design comes from like the most deprived in the way that they're working to solve problems with not much resources. I think it's really fascinating. So I'd I'd probably do that. I don't know if that's no, that's perfect. That's beautiful because you want to be able to be in the environment and say, look, these people have no money. They certainly don't have the, they're not putting together, they're trying to survive. So they're yeah. not trying to, you know, put a lot of effort and focus into design. I Maybe was, perhaps they're uneducated, right? Yeah. I was in um, another country. I won't name any countries here just for political reasons. Yeah, <laughs> no, I was, get it. You know, very third world and they're polishing these steel car rims, you know, like thousands of hours polishing things to make them shine like chrome. And it's like, you know, they don't have a chromer down the street, but they're still customizing their cars. And I was just like, I couldn't get over how beautiful these cars were. And they were all rental cars that were abandoned. So they're small, you know, Japanese import cars with 13-inch wheels. And, you know, they're, they're doing some really great things to them. Etching the paint, 
you know, just so they had like this custom paint, but it was actually just stripped away. Um, free stuff, lots of labor, but like you can see that now, this is a number of years ago, you can see that now moving into car culture here in the States at the highest, highest end. I yeah, feel like I witnessed sure. that firsthand. I saw the connection. That was the first time I was like, okay, that's where, you know, that's where we're getting this. Yeah, I believe that you're actually going to do this. So I'm, I can't wait to, to follow <laughs> you and see where you go with this. What do you do? You know, with a lot of the entrepreneurs I work with, they, um, they're super successful and they grind and grind and grind to a fault where, you know, at some point, forgive the metaphor, they blow a tire and they're like, they're just not getting the creativity that they need because they're not giving themselves the perspective to step yeah. away from the business and they're pushing and pushing and pushing and the law of diminishing returns starts to uh, to kick in. What do you do to maintain, rejuvenate that sort of artistic edge that you have in the way of taking time to decompress or to travel or to shut it off or or how do you think about that? Yeah, you have to be able to say no, you know, frequently. So I don't have a busy schedule and I don't um, really have a ton of work. <laughs> uh, how, can, how can that be? Like I've seen, I've seen your work, that has to take time. Yeah, it does. But it's, I have a, you know, I don't work very long hours, I would say. I don't, I, but I work really hard, very fast. And it sort of percolates over time. So, you know, a build might take, you know, two or three weeks to finish, but I've been thinking about it for, you know, years. You know, it's, it's life, ba it's balance. And if that gets awry, your creativity is impossible to find the, the space for it. I had a 15 year like business sort of party and my wife asked me the thing that I needed, you know, for the next year. And I was like, well, the answer is more headspace. You know, it's like, okay, so then we figure out how to like make that happen. And the headspace for me is just sitting by myself or, you know, walking around or something very simply, just thinking about who knows what. When I'm in my head, I'm in my best like place. And then when you're filled with noise around you or a busy house or wallpaper that doesn't make any sense, or, <laughs> you know, it's just like it's noise that you're just filling your head with that you don't need to think about. So I just made this picture of you like dressed as <laughs> Karl Lagerfeld walking through. I'm surrounded by idiots. Take this wallpaper down. 100%. <laughs> I, I mean, I can't, I don't know. I'm not easily distracted, but I try to make, you know, a, a distractionless place so you can just be still, you know, be quiet for a little bit. Like keep your mouth shut for an hour and see what happens. Um, How old is your child? I have a 11 year old and a 10 year old. You know, they talk a lot, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How do you, how do you set, because there's a lot of people listening to this that have children Yeah, and you know, like they want your attention. They want your time. Maybe they're younger. Do you have any rules around daddy's working? Give me a minute. No, actually I, I encourage all that kind of stuff. I love oh, that. Tell me more. Why? Well, it's just, it's real stuff, you know, like they'll pop in here and be like, Hey, the, my, my daughter, you know, will ask some really serious questions sometimes. It's like, well, that was just totally left field. You know, I can't believe, you know, 
that was happening or it's just it's surprising and it's interesting and you know it's that's not going to be there all the time you know so just sort of mm-hmm. take it um take that view in for the minute that you can see it or that you know that story or unfolding in front of your eyes that isn't going to be there again you know mm. that sounds kind of down, no, but. that sounds no, no, no. That sounds perfect. That's not with just kids, but it's it's things all over the place. You know, talk to somebody next to you on on the subrail or something like. It's might be interesting. You're there for a reason, you know. And I guess I'm curious in my in my nature, so I'm curious to see what happens. And the work can come out later. How many hours a day? Like walk walk me through just like just like high level. You, you wake <laughs> up at you wake up at what time? See, I don't want anybody what... listening to this to just hate me because I figured it all out because I haven't. But no, no, no. Listen, what this show is about is about everybody's individual take on how they're doing it. So maybe somebody can listen, take one piece of you know when the kid walks in the room and they've got a home office to go. Yeah. You know what? This moment is not going to be here forever. And they can incorporate a piece of it. That's why the show exists. So that, that you can pick and choose like a poo-poo platter, like what works for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I get up, I make breakfast for the kids, like 7.30, quarter to eight, walk mm-hmm. them down to the bus stop. And then I take a slow roll, a long breakfast for myself, <laughs> you know, until about 9.30. And then yep. I work until noon or so. Maybe I have a meeting. And then... You know, I probably go out to the shop for a little while. Depend, you know, the days change, but and the shop is next to your home. Yeah, for sure. And then okay, I, but I do like I'll, if I have a build going on. There's other shops within my community that I, I'll travel to. I might hang out with them for a while. I like to stroll junkyards and you know different places just to kind of you know clear my mind a little bit. And then by four or so, the kids run are home, and then I'm I don't know out playing in the snow with them for a little while and hit repeat, I guess. Okay. So it, so it sounds like, <clears throat> it sounds like you're intentionally giving yourself the space that you need to think you're compressing your work schedule into a three to four hour time frame where, you know, it's kind of like I saw, I saw Elton John get interviewed and it was, I don't remember what the song was, but the guy, the interviewer asked him, like how long did it take for you to make, you know, like let's yeah. say candle, candle in the wind. And he's like, oh, it, it came out in 15 minutes. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and so everybody's like, what? And he's like, yeah, it's just, it. Per- so it's, it's yeah, all you have the to time. Set, you, I mean, it might take you a year to set up for that 15 minutes though. That's right. That's the piece I'm getting at. And yeah. that's what I learned with you that it's not, you know, grinding away 12 hours a day that makes you effective. Yeah, it's, right. It's all of the work that's done outside of that grind that allows you to get in and just get it done. You know, I was struggling on a design brief for a chair. This is a pretty good example of what you're saying. And I just said, you know, forget it. I don't, I don't even know what to do here. I'm just going to like not work on this for a while. And I'm in a shop working on some suspension for a car. And I'm watching the guys build this thing. I'm in like this waiting room. And I'm like, I'm looking up at this car. I'm like, oh, there it is. Like it, it, the thought came to me. You know, but it was after a week of doing nothing with the chair, (laughs) you know, and it does take that. It's too much pressure to like put on yourself to like, oh, go be funny or go be creative or go be, you know, go make something amazing like right now. Because it just doesn't work that way. It doesn't. 
You're right. But but we think we do, and we think we could sit there and just grind it out when you're going to go get a haircut and you're going to see something, you know, that's in the in the shop that's going to make you go, oh, because you were relaxed. It's, I mean, it comes down to like, why do we get our greatest ideas in the shower, right? Just yeah, run right. away from it. So I love that. Okay, last uh, last quick rapid fire round. It's a first thing that comes to mind. Rounds. What would one of your What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Talking in depth with complete strangers, like we like we just did. Yeah, <laughs> <What's>, <laughs> well, yeah, sort of. Right. What's one of the things that you're afraid of right now? There's lots of things. No, I'm afraid of like maybe not doing what I'm capable of doing. Mm. Like missing what, an opportunity. Yep. What keeps you up at night? Something exciting the next day or like sometimes it's hard for me to like... Turn it off? Yeah, it's hard for me to turn it off. What do people never ask you but you wish they did? Yeah, like what do I like about something maybe? Something else or like name one thing that you... Like a detail or... Um, it's always a bigger design story or a bigger philosophy or... It's not, they never want a simple answer from me. Oh, in other words, if you look at this car, what, what stands out for you with this car? What do you enjoy with it as opposed to just sort of like how your brain ticks? Yeah, like, oh, I, I like that shape. That shape makes me smile instead of like the, a design philosophy that I have to like craft a narrative. Ah, you know? ah that's interesting. Okay, I love that. What book have you reread or if you, if you like audiobooks, what book have you re-listened to the most? Well, I just finished DeLorean, John DeLorean's book. Mm-hmm. And that was pretty interesting. So the first three chapters at least, and the rest was hard for me to read. But And by the way, that DeLorean is in the same room or the same building as uh, your cars. It is very, um, very true to my heart. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everything was great with that story. The cocaine got weird, but that was a great story. Yeah. Yeah. But we understand why he did it. <laughs> What is your guilty pleasure? Guilty pleasure. Yeah, I mean, I am hooked on 70s fiberglass boats and like abstract car hunting. Like I can't get enough of Facebook Marketplace. Like if that's my cocaine of John DeLorean, like that, that would be my downfall. Really interesting. Okay, and the last question is what one question, we'll switch it up. What one question would you like to ask me? What gives you the passion for this and why do you investigate this so deep? I think that I've got a a real fear of death and how like it freaks me out how it can happen in a moment. And the older I get, the more I get freaked out about it. I recognize how short the time we have on the planet is, even in the best of circumstances. So I'm 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 acutely aware of time. And I have so many interests of so many different areas of my life. And I spent the first 25 years of my life focused on business and grinding away at business. And I realized that all it did was get me more money, Mm -hmm. more stress, fatter, a divorce. And as I've gotten older, I realized that I want to be more than one dimensional, more than just work, more than just business. And I want to learn about everything. I want to learn about wine. I want to learn about opera. I want to live in different countries. 
And I can't get enough of how people think in different areas of their life, whether it is finances, relationships, business, health, spirituality, or in your case, creativity. I'm fascinated by how people do what they do because I want to incorporate it into my life. And I think that, you know, that people, I want to wake people up to the fact that this is not a dress rehearsal and that, that we need to enhance all the areas of our life, not just work. And a lot of entrepreneurs are just work. Yeah, for sure. Well, listen, this was amazing. Like I can go on for three more hours, but I think I'd hurt, I'd hurt your brain. You probably had enough of me. So thank you so much. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? You know, yeah, just do something that you want to do and, and be the master of something. Like know everything about something or have that one thing sort of about yourself that nobody else can compete with you on. I love that. It's a great place to end it. So Joey, thank you again for this. Yeah, thank you. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.